We are in Mark chapter 9, doing just Jesus stories. The microphone seems to be just the slightest bit hot to me. Are you guys hearing all right, or is it too loud, too boomy? You're all right. They're fine then. It's just my medication's worn off. We talked about the transfiguration um, last week. If you remember, it is a a pivotal story. It is a hinge point story, and it is very often overlooked as just an oddity. But please remember what it was. The Old Testament had brought them to this place. They were still enamored with Moses and Elijah, as we can understand, because we should admire and respect Moses and Elijah. But when we look for our spiritual guide, our vine, our root, our branch, we look at Jesus. And we must read all Scripture through Jesus. I've brought this up before. I'll do this very, very briefly. A couple of years ago, uh, I always speak at Summer Celebration, and I will be again at, at Lipscomb this year, Lord willing, at the end of June, uh, and the first couple of days of July is when it, it normally is, and it, it is this year. Well, a couple of years ago, they hadn't called me to speak, and it was about three weeks before, and I was fine with that, because I was thinking, you know, uh, I, can take a, I can take a year off and, and relax. Besides, I'd seen the topic, and the topic was the book of Joshua, and it's hard to teach Joshua. <laughs> there are some, some difficult parts of Joshua. So about three weeks before, I get a call from the guy that runs it. I won't say his name because he's a friend of mine and don't want to paint him in any, anything other than a friend. But he called, and he said, oh, we forgot. We thought we called you. We didn't call you. And I went, okay. We'd like for you to talk. And I'm going, ah, Joshua. Okay. What do you want me to talk about? And he said, Rahab. Oh, jeez. So I get to stand up and tell the story. And he said, and you've got 20, I think it was 25 minutes, because we're trying to do the whole book during this time. And you'll be followed by John Mark Hicks. I'm going, seriously? Really? And right before I got up, they introduced Leonard Allen. I, was, I turned to Cammy. I said, who's next? The Apostle Paul? You know. But uh, I said, I've got 25 minutes to stand up and tell people, once upon a time, a bunch of spies went into the land on a, on a God mission. Next scene, they're in a house of a prostitute. No explanation, no decision tree. How did we get here? And then they tell the prostitute, if you lie, God will bless you. And she did, and he did. You don't do that story in VBS very often. There's a reason for that. I think there are no hand motions that are appropriate for that song. (coughs) There are a lot of places there that would trouble us until we read it through the eyes of Jesus. Rahab, outside the covenant, outside the people, in a people marked for death, saved by God anyway. Then put outside the camp. She was saved, but not a part of them. She was kept outside the camp. But the next scene that we see her in, which is quite a bit later, she's married to a Jewish man. Then, the next time we see her, she's in a genealogy of Jesus. Read it through Jesus. See what Jesus is doing, regardless of what the men are doing. See what Jesus is doing. (coughs) Excuse me. And the same, all the way through, even the writings of Paul. Look at Jesus. They They were a little confused by all of this. 
As they were coming, verse 9 of chapter 9, as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Again, all we can do is, is guess, but it's probably because he didn't need the mobs and the questions. He needed to get his job done. Needed to train them before the, cro- the cross. Regardless, they kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. Because Jesus, you know, I'm the vine and the branches too. So they're trying to figure out, right, what's the metaphor mean? Then they ask him, why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Well, Jesus said to be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they've done to him everything they wish, just as it is written about him. Well, what in the world? Jesus looked upon John the Baptist as Elijah in a metaphorical sense, because he came and prepared the way. He came and cleared the, the territory and allowed Jesus to come in. He was his Elijah, and what did the world do to him? They cut off his head. He said, that's what happens, and the one who follows, they're going to they're kill me too. Now, this was not a popular thing, although the scene ends here. This is not popular, and we find this more in Matthew and Luke than we do in in Mark. But Mark's trying to teach a story. So he's going to go right out of this into a very interesting story. So I want to do that, and then if we need to back up, if you've got any questions or the like, we'll certainly back up, all right? When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing about? He asked. Well, a man and a teacher answered, rather, a man and a crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who was possessed by, he brought him his son, but he got hung up at the base of the mountain by the other disciples and teachers of the law arguing. How many people try to get to Jesus but can't get there because religious people are fighting? I was asked once in a big, there was a couple thousand of us in Columbus, Ohio, they used to do an annual event called Summit, and I was asked why more people don't believe. And I said, people don't believe for two main reasons. One, they haven't met Christians, or two, they have met them. And I, I had forgotten entirely about that. That was about, oh, 15 years ago. And on Facebook, it showed up again. People started quoting it. And I'm going, seriously? You know, people, if you're going to quote me, date me. I might have changed my mind, but on that one, I haven't. Finally, you know, let's just get back to the story. By a spirit that robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I ask your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. Now, Sounds a lot like epilepsy, but Jesus isn't going to treat it as epilepsy. Luke, who was a physician, differentiates in his, uh, in his list between those who are demon-possessed and those who are epileptic. They understood a difference there, and they had a different set of criteria for those. So just be aware, if you're reading this and somebody goes, well, they didn't understand what epilepsy was, go read it in Luke, and you'll find, yes, they did. But this was something different. 
he foams it. I ask your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. Now, Jesus' response here is rather strange. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. Now, once again, this is Mark. And so Mark's gospel is going to show Jesus' emotions in a rawer way than the others do every time. What do you think is going on in Jesus' mind? I think he's still frustrated by what happened on top of the mountain. They still weren't getting it. He's fed 4,000, or 5,000, then 4,000. He's walked on water, and they're still not getting it. They still think only Jesus can handle some stuff, and that they can't handle it. They still look at him as a wonder worker. They're frustrated. He's frustrated. They brought him to him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? I want to stop just a minute. I don't know the God-man balance in Jesus. And I know we've talked about this before. We know he was all God and all man, but I'm talking about in his consciousness. When he was three years old, I guarantee you he didn't know he was God. That would have made him the world's most insufferable three-year-old, right? I don't know when it all comes online. There is a time that Jesus looks at his disciples and says, when the end of the world comes, he goes, I don't know that time, but the Father does. So he's aware that he, as in Philippians chapter 2 says, has laid some things aside to become man. I don't know if Jesus didn't know how long this had happened, or whether he was being a good counselor. A good counselor, a good therapist, a good friend listens to your story and invites you to tell your story even though they've heard it all before. Think about that. How important is it that you get to tell your story? It's very important. To a point when you, you start losing your mental acuity, uh, maybe a little dementia starting to creep in, you'll start telling the same story over and over and over. When I go down to see my father, I get the same stories, the same jokes. They were not funny 60 years ago. They are not funny now, but I get the same jokes. Why? He needs to tell his story. Do I interrupt him and say, no, Dad, I've heard that before? No. Listen. Sometimes people need to know you care. Don't just fix them. Listen to their story. Have you ever had somebody come to tell you they're in trouble and you saw the trouble coming a year ago and yet you, you stay, if you're wise, you stay quiet and let them tell their story. You don't butt in, you let them tell their story. I can't help but wonder if that's what Jesus is doing here. Because a couple chapters ago, he used ceremony to heal a man's eyes, if you remember. He didn't have to. Sometimes we need ceremony. I'm doing a wedding this afternoon. Um, and weddings are for the women. Because men aren't that interested in a ceremony, really. Just sign the paper, shake hands, come out fighting. No, um, and be married. 
Yeah, the, um, but women need this. They need the princess moment. And, and I'm fine with that, by the way. That's not, that is not a criticism. Sometimes you need ceremony. What do we do funerals for? I did a graveside service two weeks ago for a 101-year-old woman. She didn't need a graveside service. But her grandkids and great-grandkids did. They needed that opportunity. So we gave them that opportunity. You understand what I mean? Ceremony sometimes is necessary. So I don't mean to get hung up here. It's just one of those things that as I was reading the Gospels years ago and, and it brought me to faith, it stuck out. The dad answers from childhood. He answers, it's often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. We'll stop there again. Demons are not on our side, duh, but they always claim they are. Don't you think about this? Every temptation you've ever had promises something good. Yeah, this, this will be fun. You'll enjoy this. This will be good. You deserve this. They always point you down one road and you end up somewhere else, Right? Do we need to give illustrations? I mean, we could do the biggies, alcohol and drugs and sex, but the fact is we could do the little things too about anger, greed, argument. They always promise something and they never deliver. They may not kill you by throwing you into water or fire, but they'll kill you a day at a time. They'll kill you a piece of your heart at a time. Then the man goes, but if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, says Jesus. I like this about Jesus. I like it that he isn't so holy, I cannot relate to him. He's also man. And he's going, how, how many times? I get a lot of communication from ministers who are frustrated. Somewhat less from shepherds, elders that are frustrated. And they've about had it with these people. My response to them, whenever they ask, how long should I put up with it? I always say, make sure that it's not killing you spiritually. Make sure that it's not damaging your family. But that said, be as patient with them as you want God to be with you. You know, surprisingly, I'd say about a third of the time, I never hear back from them. It's kind of like, no, I didn't want to hear that. I want to hear something else. Or maybe that fixed it, but I don't think so. If you can do anything, he goes, if you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Verse 24 has been a part of my prayer life for over 40 years. Anybody else? I'm getting some nods. Yeah. I, I, I said it yesterday. I believe, but I'm struggling here. Help me with my unbelief. If you, did not if you were not aware of that passage, please put it in your armory. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, remember, he didn't want the crowds. He wanted to do his job. He rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said. I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. That's kind of important. The Bible by the way, we may do a spiritual warfare series in a class here. Um, uh, end of summer, somewhere in there. 
after the, the men and women's classes are done, because people have asked. Uh, remember Jesus warns that you can throw the devil out and he can come right back in. Let me be controversial if I can do that uh, for a bit. There are hundreds and hundreds of psycho psychological therapeutic counseling modalities. People ask me, which one works best? There really isn't an answer to that. All of them work to some degree or another. And I say all of them. There's got to be some stupid ones that don't, you know, but mainstream ones, whether you're behaviorism or whether you're, you're doing cognitive therapy or uh, rational emotive therapy or what, Rogerian, whatever it is, if you, if you really gel with your therapist and you form a relationship, the, the chances are it's going to help you. And I've had people say, well, if demons cause all kinds of problems in us, how can secular therapy help you? It's because demons hate light. They hate truth. I want you to think of it as a New York City apartment. doesn't matter how clean you keep things. They're going to be cockroaches. And again, it's not it. People can be as neat as they want to be, but they're just in that area. When you throw on the light switch, what do cockroaches do? They scatter. You turn off the light, what happens? They come back. All right. Any truth the devil hates, any truth. So you bring out truth, he will either try to fight you or run. But if you don't fill up the space with Jesus, he can come back when you're not paying attention. Remember Jesus talked about that? If you drive him out and you sweep it clean, but you don't fill it, he can come back. He'll get some buddies and he'll be back. Jesus here is going the extra mile for this boy and saying, you don't get to come back. You're done. By the way, we belong to Jesus. We can say that too. But don't say it. Don't say, I command you. No, don't, never, never, never. We only use the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus, you can't come back. You're done here. When Jesus, and after this is done, the spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind can only come out by prayer. A couple of the other gospels will add something there. Fasting and prayer. couple things. One, this is a lesson, but also this is a rebuke. What have the disciples been doing? They've been doing it as a show, as a service we offer, because we get to follow Jesus? Or had they really been engaging with God during this time? It would seem to indicate they hadn't prayed about it. They just leapt in. The thing which I admire most about Nehemiah, I know it seems random, it isn't, there's a connection. Every single time Nehemiah is asked a question, he prays first, and then he answers. It's, we'll talk about this in the men's classes in June. Uh, I, I don't know if they've changed the procedure or not, because this has been whew, 30 years ago. 
I talked to some Navy men, U.S. Navy men, who had gone from enlisted to officer. And before they were sent off to, I think they call that OTC, officer um, training. Before they were sent off to that, they had to pass a board. And the board was made up of uh, senior enlisted and officers to ask some questions. And I asked one man, well, how, what was that like? What did it look like? And he said they were, by, I forget how many, were behind a, a single long table. And I had to stand in front of them. Uh, at, at attention at first and then at ease. I'm sorry, but at ease doesn't look that at ease to me. And then they asked me questions and I answered the questions. I said, what was the hardest part? And he said, this is what I don't know if it's changed. When they asked me a question, I think he said uh, 30 seconds. He may have said a whole full minute. I was not allowed to answer for the, let's say, 30 seconds. They would say, what is your name? And you had to wait till that second hand. There's a big clock behind him. Where do you live? What is your MOS, your military occupational specialty? All of this. And I said, that seems a little odd. Why would they do that? And he said, it was explained to me that they do not want an officer who speaks before he thinks. And they want to see if you can discipline yourself. Oh. Um, don't move before you pray. Check in with your commander. What do you need me to do? Let's see if we can do this. And if you're not used to disciplining yourself, do not expect to discipline the devil. Fasting. I am, um, again, I don't know how to do this without being offensive, sadly. Um, you will find people, let's say at Walmart, because that's the cultural joke but it can happen anywhere. That our adults, that you can tell by looking at them, are completely undisciplined in all aspects of their life. And they're yelling at their kids. How effective is that going to be? Only a disciplined person can really discipline another. I remember in high school, did you ever have a PE teachers that were completely out of shape? We had one that sat on the bleachers and smoked while yelling at us. I'm serious. Because you, you used to be able to smoke in school. And he would smoke. Big old belly and everything else. Cough and hack and all of this. He didn't have a drink, you know. But he would smoke. Yelling at us to run around. And what's wrong with you lazy people? And we're, I'm looking over. Well, maybe we're trying to be you. You know, maybe you're our model. But I said that inside. Jesus is looking at them saying... You discipline yourself. You straighten up your life and you talk to God and you pray, then you go against this. But you just don't walk into this. This isn't a show. This is war. You better be prepared. Kind of like my son was in the reserves and so we got to see him a lot. He would come home and he came home and he would always, we'd always, he'd sit on the stairs when you walk in the front door and uh, talked to us for a while. Then he would dismiss Mama because sometimes he would be taking off boots that hadn't been off for a month. And you don't need Mama in there for that. Uh, I'm exaggerating when I say a month. I have no idea how long. But I remember one time he had, uh, as they, they, the expression is, you walk through your feet. He, there was blood in his boots. And coming, you know what I'm talking about, Sarge. And blood staining his boots. And he had a big welted eye from where he had helped his um, Lance Corporal or Sergeant, it doesn't matter, I guess, 
uh, off of a rigging where he'd gotten trapped, and then the foot, foot came around and whacked him in the head. And he, he, he called and warned us, you know, when mama sees me, I'm fine. And we're going, all right, that's what you want to hear. So he's sitting by the fire, and, and I mean, bru- blisters this big are coming off of him. Those people listening on audio, it, their blisters are this big. I mean, there's got to be a penalty for not showing up, don't you think? Uh, anyway, and what was astounding me was there was never a word of complaint. And I looked at him and I said, I got to bring this up. I said, why aren't you, you're not complaining about anything. And he looked at me like I'm an idiot, but I'm used to that look, so I was not offended. And he said, da, somebody somewhere right now is training to kill me. I have to train more than them. I was going, well, now I get it, but now I wish I didn't have that picture in my head. Jesus is telling us, don't go into this untrained. You discipline yourself. You pray, and you move when God tells you to move, and you do it in faith. You don't do it scared. You do it in faith. There's a whole lot in here to unpack. Do you see what I mean? All of the, and again, what have we just been told by God himself? You want to know how to do things? Look at Jesus. How many times did Jesus just disappear for prayer? A lot. How many times did he go quiet and separate for thought and prayer? A lot. Why do we think we can get away with doing less? All right. That's a whole lot to throw out. And... Uh, I don't need, mean for this to be a monologue, although it often is, because this is an awkward situation. I'm aware of that. Here we are in the big family room. We're all scattered apart, so there won't be any accidental fellowship. Hi, guys. Hello. Hi. I won't bring up that you're in here interrupting anything. Sorry. Doing good. Yeah, I'm doing good. Yay. Thank you. We got great kids here. They're not kids. They're, they're young men and women, but we have... The best of the best. Anyway, that said, any, any questions or comments or observations you've got you'd like to make? I think that's a brilliant question. He says, being military, before you go into battle, you always have a mission plan. You've always prepared yourself. Why why do we as Christians not stop, pray, and plan before we do something? Anybody want to take a shot at that? Oh, the wife will. (laughs) We're impatient. Oh, no, no, you, you, you went a very important place there. I was not expecting you to go. Yeah, you, you, no, you went an excellent place. We're impatient. We think we've got it. I think that's a huge part of it, don't you? But then she went further. She said, and we're afraid that what God will tell us is not what we want to hear. Um, a Jonah problem? Okay. 
I have an idea of what Jonah's problem is. Tell me what you think. Exactly. Jonah wanted them done, dead. He didn't want them forgiven. That's excellent. There's one here, then one over, over here. Yes, one. If you don't believe it's going to work every time, it won't work every time. And I would, I would agree with you. And I would say then the question, that begs the question, how do we build that belief? And I think that comes back to you'd best be disciplined and you'd best be close to your commander. So, yes, ma'am. Did you have your hand up? She said it's the same, the belief issue. Now, We've all done really nice Christian Bible school answers here. Let me ask a different question. How many of us still struggle with moving in belief? My hand is now going up. Now, some people don't. And so if your hand's not going up, I do not think you're a hypocrite. I've met people who have never had a doubt in their life, and they've told me that, and I believe them. That's the way they act. Uh, I'm, I may be one of God's problem children. I'm aware of that. I don't doubt God. I don't even doubt the goodness of God. Sometimes I doubt that what he and I think are good are the same thing. I talked to um, a lady two weeks ago. We did a, a thing on faith and doubt in and, and Memphis. Uh, at the Sycamore View Church, uh, great church. And her presentation, they had a couple people do TED Talks before. If you don't know what TED Talks are, I really can't help you. Um, she did a TED Talk on her struggle with faith. And she is, all of her life, she was a, a very nice-looking young lady, probably 30, I'd guess. She, all of her life had struggled with crippling depression. And she still did. And so she said, I really don't doubt that God is there. My doubting is, does he care? Now, she, she says, I know he does intellectually, but the feeling I have when I wake up. I'm not asking anybody to always have those things perfectly in line. What I am saying is, let's be aware that when they're out of line, the cure is, according to Jesus, fasting and prayer. And I would add one more thing, risking adding one more thing to what Jesus would say but I think it was assumed, fasting and prayer in community. Um, I'm a brain guy. I know about brains. The uh, intelligence, you're born with an intelligence ceiling. Your, your genetics will not let you get above a certain place. Life makes you dumber. Bad nutrition, bad experiences, trauma to the head, you can get dumber. We can make you dumber. But there's a ceiling. Now, doesn't mean that you've reached your ceiling. Please don't misunderstand me. But there is a limit there. Intelligence, therefore, is a function of genetics. But wisdom is a function of community. You need community for wisdom. Do you understand the difference? If not, just really work on that. 
So in my fasting and in my prayer, I need community. When I say I, I am talking personally and I'm making it all about me. I think that you probably do as well, but I'm going to just tell you that for me, prayer can be a real struggle. And I'll I'll see Albert walking in my door. I have an open door policy, which has been a tragic mistake. People keep walking in. I I assumed it would be open. They'd just wave as they passed. But Albert will walk in to pray with me about something. And I'll start to get a little panic attack because I know he's going to be a lot better at this than I am. You know, I'm I'm trying to look behind me for the, the book of common prayer to find something. I would even tell you that finding books of prayer are a good thing. The Psalms are a good thing. Why? Because sometimes your community has words for the way you feel. So go find those words. Um, Anything else you want to say before we look on a little bit? By the way, I need to clean my glasses. When I do this, it got foggy in the room. This kind can only come out by prayer. Sometimes, I, I, I haven't seen him for the longest time. I don't watch religious TV, but I remember I used to, you'd be in a hotel and you'd just have to flick through the channels and you'd see somebody waving a coat, knocking demons out of people. And I'm going, really? Buddy? It, have you ever read Acts? Where the guys said, in the name of the God of you know, Paul and Jesus, get out. And the demon looks at him and goes, I know them, but I don't know you and leaves them naked and bleeding in the street, the sons of Sceva, watch out. Be ready before you go to battle. Um, There's so much more I could say about that, but they left that place. They passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. See, he has a job to do. He wants to hand it to us, which is an amazing act of faith on God's part. He said to them, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days, he he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. That would indicate Jesus got fed up with them sometimes. If you read Mark, you see that. But if you remember, before they were confused about what rising from the dead means, and they're still trying to process all of this, they came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet. <laughs> because on the way, they'd argued about who was the greatest. If that was the only verse you had in the gospel, you would know that Jesus had only picked men to be his disciples. Because that's what men do. Uh, sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child whom he placed among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. I want to ask you a really hard question for Christians. If I'm an unbeliever, and yet I'm a kind person, and a little child needs held and comforted, and I comfort that child... Am I welcoming Jesus? Yeah. Does that save me? There's no indication that it does, but have you read the judgment scene 
as described by Jesus, it's all about how you treated each other. All about how you treated each other. Almost as if Jesus had read John 15 that we read this morning. I mean, there's some stunning, stunning stuff that we might have to conclude from all of this. And it would trouble our little basket of what's necessary. And what is it? And if you're not troubled, then you're not really paying attention. Some days, by the way, that's why we say connect, grow, serve. We don't say baptize somebody. Connect somebody to Jesus or to each other. Grow in some way every day and serve somebody. We have a rule in our family, never walk past a crying person. Taught my kids that. My wife and I will, will, you know, will be in an airport, walk by and we'll see somebody crying, we stop. Ask them, you know, we'll see somebody at the store, we'll stop. Never ask, and it's just one of our rules. Doesn't have to be one of yours, it's one of ours. We have other rules such as that. Um, many, do you know the comedian Bob Smiley? He's a Christian comedian. You know, he's, he's, he's pretty good, and he's a friend of mine. I enjoy him. And he was in a situation yesterday where um, <coughs> he was at a, a petrol station, a gas, gas station. And a man walked up to him and, and said, you know, my kids are hungry. I don't know. And, and Bob gave him some money. And a man walked off a little bit, pulled out his iPhone and was texting. And Bob's going, well, he's got an iPhone and then another guy, two guys, same petrol station. And he gave money to both of them. And the other guy had an iPhone too. And the first guy was saying, I'm sorry about that guy. This is my spot. And so he was right. And some of us saying, was, was, should I have given them any money at all? And I didn't respond because I don't know. It seemed like a lot of other people knew absolutely what he should have done. But I was going, I don't know. What I do know is this. God saw it. And if you did it out of love, you get credit, even if they did it, to scam you. Remember what Jesus called that? He called it bread on the water. You throw bread on the water, it looks like a waste of perfectly good bread. But you know how fishermen used it? Some of you do. Go every day to the same spot, throw out bread on the water. Then one day you'd go out and you don't throw out bread. You throw out a net, and you get all the fish. But it looks like you're wasting it for a while. Have you ever been to one of those big koi ponds where they, they, you, know, you put in a quarter and you get some food, and as soon as you put in the quarter, what do the fish do? You know, and, and, it's, and your kids have to do it. You know, they drop it all in one big ball, you know, knock the fish down. It's, it's, it's fun. Jesus is saying it looks like it's wasteful, but it's not wasteful. Do good. Pick up one of those babies. That's why the nursery things, that's important. That's why, and if you didn't sign it, I'm trying to guilt you, even though you probably deserve it. No, I'm kidding. It may not be your gift. You know, kids may not be your gift, and, and fair enough. But some kindness somewhere is your gift. And I would just stress, he looks at them and says, we don't concern ourselves with who's in charge. We don't concern ourselves with who's top or best. 
we serve, and we start with the weakest among us and go from there. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, the, uh, the, if you haven't seen it, atheists are advertising now, billboards and the like, and she was saying up north, and it is more common up north, because that's more of their target demo, you know, I'm doing without God, um, uh, or anti-Christmas things saying we, you don't need that to be good. There's a wonderful book called Can We Be Good Without God, but I won't go through all of that right now, because our, our time is up, but I want to I answer your question the best I can. There is no indication in Scripture that doing good erases the evil we have done. What doing good does is show that we are following God, whether we know it or not. The book of Romans deals almost exclusively with this, and we miss it a lot. It talks about people that follow the law even though they don't have the law and contrasts them with people that have the law but live as if they don't. And so you can have people that have the law, should be nice Christian people, at that point nice Jewish people, but they're not. And then the Gentiles over here that don't have a law are behaving better than you are. And he talks about, so then, how do we deal with this? And he comes down to the point where in chapter 6, everybody has sinned. Everybody. And the wages of sin is death. So how do we get forgiveness of sins? And it talks about Jesus. So do I give atheists credit when they do good? Absolutely. Do I think Jesus does? Absolutely. Will that save them? Romans says they still have to bow the knee to Jesus. Now, we can even argue about whether that's always on earth or whether they get a second chance. I'm, I don't know. My job is to do it here and to show other people how to do it here. His job is judgment. I'm going to leave that to him. Does that help? All right. Sorry we went a little bit over time here, but at least the sermon was shorter. So there you are. <laughs> Run away.